I want to look at tonight from Romans chapter 9. And so Romans 9 through 11 for many Christians is off limits because it's hard to understand. So we're going to look at some sections of this and we'll have a great and a little bit more in-depth study on this on Wednesday night. But I want to look at Romans chapter 9. We'll look at verses 6 through 18. We're going to look at God's grace, His election, uh, the working of the hearts of men. All these things are in the book of Romans. I'm kind of giving a little, little bit of a recap here on Romans. Wonderful book. And it's one of those books uh, where if you have a question, uh, when it's one of those deep questions, a lot of times it's answered here. And I don't, as a minister, I get a lot of these questions. People will come to me and ask things. I'm like, why do you want to know the answer to that? Why do you even ask that question? You know, but, and then I'll go and I'll read the scripture and like, well, it was a question that was asked and answered here in scripture. So, as a minister, I should know this. I should study it and think about it a little bit more. Now, I have some of my own questions. I've always asked questions about how does the atonement of Jesus and his sacrifice work? I want to know more about that. You know, for a lot of Christians, it'd be like, I just believe Jesus died for me. Isn't that enough? And Jesus, God says he died on my half as a sacrifice. Why do I need to know about the blood atonement and how that works and life and death and to me, it's fascinating. I've wanted to know it, and I've studied it very deeply, and I'm glad the book of Romans addresses that in detail for people like me. Now, I also get other questions. Here's one of those questions that often comes up that would annoy me, and it was this question. Now, I'm saying it's annoying to me, but I'm not saying it's a wrong question and it's a bad question to ask because it's essentially brought up here in uh, Romans 9 through 11. And here it is. I'll get this common question from different people at different times. And I wonder where they get it from, too, because there's something else behind it. What I hear behind it is some philosophic, philosophical skeptic who doesn't know the Bible, but they're able to ask two or three of those really hard questions that, well, they can't answer, of course, because they don't know the Bible. And they think and hope you don't answer it, so they have a little cop-out to not, to, to not answer, you know, and not to to be faithful and not to think about God or Christ. So, I keep telling you I'm going to tell you the question. Maybe I will. But the question, the question I get, and Garland, maybe you've gotten this a lot. Why would God create people He knew would disobey Him, rebel against Him, and do evil? I mean, He knows Him ahead of time, and it's not like He has to take free will away. He could just create people who, by their own free will, always obey Him. Well, why did He make those the other people who don't believe, who are not faithful. And I hear that question, and I've always thought, that's an annoying question. I, I thought, why, why would I want to even answer that? God made people, he gave them free will, okay? And, and some people reject him. Now, I also know what the Bible says, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, he says there in verse 9, that God desires for all people to come to repentance. It's not like they can't come to repentance. He wants them to. Or 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4, where it says God wants all people to be saved. He wants them all to be saved. It's not as though he has predestined people to go to hell. But some people definitely believe that. They believe that he has predestined people to go to hell. I do believe this. God has created people for honorable use and dishonorable use. And he has so because he already knows down the line what they're going to choose by their own free will. And that doesn't have anything to do with individual predestination. Um, and so when you get into these texts, this is what people often use. They, they go to 
a little bit of Romans 8, and then they jump right into Romans 9, and a little bit of 10, and then a lot in chapter 11, to say, you know, I believe that we're individually predestined, and you'll find out through the course of life either way of whether you're a person destined for hell, because God is intended for you for that. Now, we're going to read some about that, and I hope that we'll think about it a little bit further. Um, here are some other questions that come up, I think, that, that tie into this and lead us into what we're about to read here. What happens to hearts when we do not recognize, honor, and thank God? So Romans chapter 1 has answered that. It says when you do not recognize God and you don't honor Him and thank Him, then you're going to be given over your heart and your passions to desires that you won't be able to control because you rejected the Creator and you accepted a lie. And so Romans is addressing a lot of these heart problems, these, these problems, these struggles that we really get deep into to addressing. All right, so get into Romans chapter 6, and we've talked about this. Romans 6, you've got constant encouragement from Paul to not commit sins because if you commit them with your body and with the members of your body, they can become embedded in you so that you see, like in Romans chapter 7, sin comes to dwell within you, and all of a sudden you're doing what you don't want to do and not doing what you do want to do. And then you get to Romans chapter 8, and he says, but God, Christ has an answer for this. And the whole course of Romans is, here's all these really deep fundamental problems that all the world wonders about. What are we going to do about mental illness? What are we going to do about addictions? What are we going to do about the chaotic way in which people are living in their sexual lives when, and the, what they're, these perverse things that are going on, all the wickedness in the world, and the scriptures right here in Romans is saying, God has the answer. It's in Christ. He said it. He's put it in place. All right, so the one question there is what happens to hearts when we don't recognize, honor, and thank God? Second question, what happens to your flesh when you give in to sins? We see that in Romans. Another third question that we're going to come to tonight is what happens to hearts when people harden their hearts and reject God's Son? What happens to us then when we harden our hearts? So you're going to get to this passage here where it says God has made people and some are of honorable use and some of dishonorable. But as we read these scriptures that God says anybody can be saved, then we, we keep these things in perspective. All right, let's, let's read chapter 9, and let's just go 6 through 10. I'm sorry, 6 through 13. And a question here would be, who are the children of God? Now, we've studied Galatians, and we've read Romans. You, you're very familiar with the answer to this. But I think it's going to lay down the basis for two other questions we're going to ask tonight that, that often come up. One of them I've already mentioned. All right, so chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Okay, just to give a little bit of context. That he's talking about his own brethren, his own kinsmen, uh, who, are of, who are Jewish, according to the flesh. They're Israelites. And they have all these great blessings from God, but they do not believe in Christ, and therefore they're still not saved. And Paul, you know, this hurts him. It hurts him to the heart. He wants them to be saved. So again, he's saying it's not the word of God failed. God's word didn't fail for the Israelites. And he's going to explain that to us. Verse 6, second part. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So let's just pause for a minute. If you're an Israelite, doesn't really make you mean that you're really of Israel, that you're of God because you're simply a Jew or an Israelite. Those who are of Israel include those who are of faith and specifically of the promise of Abraham. And so that would include Jews and Gentiles, essentially. And it would also exclude 
anyone who's Jewish or, or an, of Israelite descent today who might claim the inheritance and the promises of God, but they don't have them because they don't trust in Him and they don't believe in His Son of whom He prophesied and it's, it's, it spoke through His prophets and told us that He was coming. Look at verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham because they are His offspring. It's not merely the offspring. He says, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And why does he say through, offspring, through Isaac? Well, Isaac was the son of promise. It's according to promise. That all the blessings upon all the nations of the earth would come through Isaac because it's of that promise to Abraham. Look at verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as his offspring. So I'm a child of God, but I'm a follower of Christ. It's not merely about my ancestry or who I'm a descendant of. It's about the faith. Verse 9, For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. There's that promise again of Isaac. And so he's, he's putting that in there, that we are the children of the promise. All right? And then he makes another application here. Look at verse 10. And not only so, but also with Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, so here's the, the line of the promise. But then he's using this. Paul's using this. This is where people get lost. He's going to show God's work of grace and providence here. Look at verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. And as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Well, that sounds like individual predestination, if you take it the wrong way. Um, but think about what he's saying here. He's saying they haven't done anything wrong. But what is God doing here? This is what, what's God's, what God is doing by his own grace and providence with any individual. He knows ahead of time what they need in their life. And so here, Esau is first, right? But Esau is going to be last. And Jacob is last, but he's going to be first. God does this. He works in ways that's providentially best. He's in a position where he takes those who might be in a position of power and privilege, and he knows how to humble them, and he's able to take people who are of the most lowly estate and bring them up and put them where they need to be to do great and wonderful works. Um, and, he, and he brings his work and glory. Now, that doesn't mean that Esau is ultimately lost here. Now, on the other hand, God says all this in your reading here. It says God hated Esau. Now, if you go and you read the, the Scripture and you look that passage up in the Old Testament, uh, you'll know a lot more about th this prophecy. The prophecy here uh, from Malachi is that God is talking about the nation of Edom and the nation of Jacob. And that God, by this always taking the younger son, the youngest of sons, even from, you know, like Joseph, um, under Jacob, God does that. He, he takes sometimes the weakest people and brings out his great power and work in it. He does this all for his glory. He does this all to demonstrate his power. And so that's what we're reading about right here. We're not saying that anybody was predestined to heaven or hell here. What we're seeing is, is God already had a plan. He already knew in his foresight. He already knew what providential grace he was going to, to work out um, in their lives for the benefit of them. That's what I see here and what I'm reading here in the Scripture. So those are things that definitely stand out. It reminds me of uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5-6. through 6. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He gives grace 
All right? The word in the Bible for God's providential work is grace, charis. God is doing these things. He's giving gifts and blessings. And then he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may, may exalt you. And that is true. Sometimes we might feel, God, when are you going to use me? How are you going to use me? You look, look at me. I don't have this, and I don't have this ability, and I don't have a lot of money, and I don't have all these things. Um, I just, you know, you can wonder at certain points in your life, God, what are you doing with me? And I've heard people, I've gone to a rehabilitation center and hospital where people have been very sick, and they said, I don't know why God keeps me around. Why does he keep me around? Why does he need me? But you know, I'll see those individuals and later in life, and by their example and by their faith and their continual prayer, they'll live another 10 years, even though they struggle with their health, but they're a constant example and reminder to their family, to their loved ones, to children, those who have struggled with their faith and where they should be. And God is constantly using them, and sometimes we just can't see what God is is doing in our lives. But again, if we humble ourselves, God in the proper time, He exalts us. He uses us. All right, here comes another question in Romans. So Romans 9, we're going to look at verses 14 through 18. Here's another question that comes up. How can God harden hearts? And so some people have said, well, if God can harden hearts. He has all sovereignty over people, over their minds. We don't really have free will. Well, if you're using this scripture to come up with that, which many of the Calvinist persuasion and the Reformed thinking say, they're wrong. Because that's not what the passage is saying here. And I'm about to clear that, make it very clear in a moment. Notice this again. When you go back to Romans chapter 1, and it says those people who refuse to recognize God, honor God, and thank God, he says that their hearts were given over to sinful passions. Why? Because at first, they made a decision. They acted by their own choices. And then what happened? Well, then their heart becomes affected by that. I want you to notice that here with Pharaoh. Let's read that passage. All right. Romans 9, 14, 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? You know, that's the first question that comes out when you just read everything about Jacob. Isn't this unjust? Isn't it not fair that God would put the first last and the last first? No, it's not. He knows what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's the one that exalts the humble. So what shall we say then? Is there injustice in in God's part? This cannot be. By no means. It, It cannot happen. Okay? That's Paul's adamant. Look at verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Why? For our own good. You know, God doesn't do anything that's going to be Contrary to our own good, he's not going to have mercy and compassion upon who he has mercy and compassion and just leave the rest of them to go to hell. That's not the work here. That's not what we're seeing here. All right, look at verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God and on his mercy. Yes, and I need the mercy of God and the working of his grace in my life. All right, verse 17. For the scripture says, Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so you have this passage in Exodus, and you have God saying, I'm going to use you, Pharaoh. Now, if Pharaoh would have obeyed God, there would there'd be something different in history, of course. But God already knew ahead of time, of course, how he would react. But God will use him, even in his hardness of heart, his rejection of God, and Pharaoh's own rejection, 
God uses him to demonstrate his power and his glory, and it's for the benefit of everybody. Of everybody. As as a Christian, and I, I need to see what it's like around me. It's like when I see people rebelling against God in a way that it kind of helps me in the sense of I better be careful. I better pay attention to myself. I can't go down that same, that same route. The Bible warns us about that. Take heed to yourself. You read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Take heed lest you fall. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12 as I recall. So we have these warnings here and we see it in the world around us. God has made in everything in creation in a wonderful way. For our own benefit. So verse 18, he says, So then, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. All right. He has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. How can God harden hearts? All right, let's go. The perfect example is right here, is Pharaoh. All right. I got a number of passages right here. And you're not going to be able to write them all down, but I'm going to tell you something. Pharaoh... When we read about him and we see Moses coming to him and doing those miraculous works that God gave him to do, what did Pharaoh do? First thing Pharaoh did, it says he hardened his heart. He did it himself. It's in Exodus 7 and verse 13. It's in Exodus 7 and verse 14. It's in Exodus 7 and verse 22. It's in Exodus chapter 8 and verse 15. It's in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 19. It's also in verse 32. It's in chapter 9 and verse 7. It's in chapter 9 and verse 34. It's in chapter 9 and verse 35. All right, so you just see chapter 7 through 9. Pharaoh hardening his own heart from the first five plagues that are before him. And then, it's not till we get into the middle of Exodus chapter 9 that we read, because he had been hardening his heart, that he had turned against God, that it says that God hardened his heart. You know, when I think about this, it reminds me of Romans 1, it reminds me of other passages. When I continue to rebel against God, I don't thank him, I don't worship him, I don't honor him, I cannot just sit on the fence. Lawlessness leads to more lawlessness, Romans chapter 6. You, there's no sitting on the fence with him. You're, you're gonna, you can't do that. And so here you are hardening your heart, thinking, well, one day maybe I'll make a different decision. No, God now hardens Pharaoh's heart. This is going to come to its, its, its end. You made the decision, and now it's going to feel itself out. So in Exodus 9 and verse 12, it's the first reference you see there where it says God hardened his heart. And then you got Exodus 10. You notice we're going into latter chapters. Chapter 10 and verse 1. Chapter 10 and verse 20. Chapter 10 and verse 27. Chapter 11 and verse 10. And chapter 14 and verse 8, it says, Now God hardened his heart. That God hardened the heart of Moses. I mean, of Pharaoh, excuse me. So think about that, though. A lot of people think, oh, I have time. I have time. And yet they keep hardening their heart, and they keep telling themselves, I'm okay. You don't know what's coming. And you keep rejecting God, and you may continue to be hardened. And so when it says here that God hardens hearts, I believe it. He does, after we've chosen to reject him, after we've turned against him. And he will use that to show his power and glory in the world. And you might have other questions that go along with that. I want you to think about that. i got one more question tonight for Romans 9, 19 through 23. Why would God make people who would choose to disobey him? Why would he make people who would not obey him, that would rebel against him, so these are the kind of questions that are being answered here in Romans 9. A lot of people ask, and for me, I've just thought, you know, 
I trust God. I understand that He wants all people to be saved. But I think these are fascinating things to study, and they're in here for a reason. We need to think about them. All right, let's begin in verse 19. He says, you will say to me then, notice this. You know, Paul's getting these same questions 2,000 years ago. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? You know, God can harden hearts. How can he find any fault in him? But we see why he found fault in Pharaoh, because Pharaoh was hardening his heart. He started it. He's the one that rejected God. He turned on God. He says, for who can resist his will? For who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will that is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? You know, a lot of people say that today. God, why did you make me this way? I've asked God a lot of times, why did he make me this way? Uh, but at this time, they're saying it in what way? To justify their sins. I was born this way. We used to hear that, I was born this way. Now it's, well, I feel different, so I've changed to be like this. You know what I'm referring to. All right, look at verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay? Here we have the potter, that's God, has right over the clay, us, the vessel, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. Yeah, he's going to make us. Yes, he knows the end result of us. He also knows that it's our own choices that bring about what happens. But what's the good in all that? Look at verse 22. What if God, notice this, and he starts off with a what if here. But what Paul is saying is, is this is what God is doing. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Yeah, God has that ability. He has that prerogative. He has that choice. And what's he doing here? He's showing his own glory, his own power. And he's showing his wrath and justice against wickedness. He's also showing his mercy and his patience to those vessels, those, those dishonorable ones who chose in their life, to turn against him. Look at verse 23. And then he says, in order to make known the riches of his glory. And so in contrast to that, he's also making known the wealth, his great wealth of his glory for the vessels of mercy. Those are according to the promise. Those who live by faith and trust in him, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. God has prepared those of which who will believe in Him and trust in Him and love Him, that they are prepared for glory. That's what they're coming to. We can get into more details on that. But, you know, I look at that answer right there and I think, well, I'd like to draw it out some more. And there's some other things we'll talk about on Wednesday night and you know, a little bit more in Romans 9 and a lot more in Romans chapter 11 on this matter. But I hope that you'll think about that more. When we read Romans 9 through, 10, we, 9 through 11, we have plenty to discuss on Wednesday evening. But we see what God does. All of this, it's the contrast, light and darkness. It's for us to see the glory of God and what it means to rebel against Him. You know, imagine if there were no consequences for rebelling against God. That, that would just wouldn't make any sense, would it? There, there has to be consequences to someone who hardens their hearts, who rebels against God, and even God is still patient with us, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But then there are some, God has made them, and He knows, because He's omniscient, all-knowing, that they're going to live a life of rebellion and wrath, and rebellion against Him and sin, and deserving of His ultimate wrath. So the choice in the existence of rebellion against God in the world 
It has an effect. Another effect on this that came to my mind as I'm thinking about this, why does God allow this? Why would he create individuals being the potter? He makes the clay. He knows what they're ultimately going to do. It reminds me of Jesus' parable in Matthew chapter 13. Remember the parable of the weeds? So we read over there in, in Matthew, we read it the, the field and that has been sown, and yet an enemy comes and sows weeds among the, the produce of the field. Let's, I'm going to read that very quickly. So Matthew 13, 24 to 30. I don't want to miss any details on this. And this is what he's, Jesus says. He put a parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven must be compared to a man who has sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. As so when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does this have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? Notice that. Are you going to go gather the weeds out? And what, does, what is the parable here again is the good man being God and, and in Christ the seed has been planted and then the enemy, Satan, has come and planted these weeds. And instead of pulling out the weeds, notice what would happen if you pulled out the weeds, what would happen? Verse 29, he says, But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. There seems to be an effect upon the rest of us. That here we are in a world and there's so many people in rebellion and it's, it's actually all, God works all things for good, right? Romans 8 and verse 28. So that even being around sin and rebellion is for our better good, not to root us up. Verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. And that is a reference to hell. But gather the wheat into my barn. Gather them into my kingdom. So as we read Romans tonight, a lot of deep stuff here. A lot of those big, deep questions that people ask, and the answers are here in the Scriptures. And uh, I see some of that and what Jesus has taught here in the parable of the weeds is reflected here in Romans chapter 9. And I hope that this is worth your attention tonight in thinking about uh, these difficult uh, passages. These are the passages I think that Peter was referring to as we talked about this morning. When Peter said, Paul's writings and speaking the wisdom of God and some things are hard to understand. And they take time and they take thought to understand um, what is taking place here, what's being revealed to us. So as we look over Romans tonight and give a summary and, an, and a little bit of an encouragement, see how the warnings against rejecting God, we, we see that. We see the warnings against rejecting God in Romans 1. We see the warnings against giving into sin and then the indwelling of sin, Romans 6 and chapter 7. We see warnings against hardening our heart. If we keep turning against God, even God's people of Israel, whom He's providentially cared for, if they turn against Him and their heart's not right, they're not going to believe in Jesus. What's the end result? Well, it's by their own rebellion. Not all who are of Israel are of Israel. You must be a child of Abraham, a child of faith, one who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and you believe that He rose from the dead. Tonight, if you believe that, you can make confession of it and obey the gospel. If anybody needs prayers and encouragement, we give that invitation to you. Um, and I hope that we will read Romans and think more deeply about this.
for our Wednesday night study. And God bless you.